Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. It is July 3rd. Hope you are enjoying your long holiday weekend, even if you haven't been able to steal away anywhere this year. We have a number of stories to get through this week. Alex, why don't we start with Lemonade's surprising IPO? Lemonade, which has put a high-tech spin on renters and homeowners insurance, went public on Thursday and took off like a rocket. The New York-based InsurTech startup opened at $50.06, a substantial increase over its IPO price of $29. Its closing price was $69, giving the four-year-old company a market cap of $3.8 billion. Lemonade stands out because it uses technology, data, and machine learning to approve loans in seconds. Lemonade once granted a payout for a stolen Canada Goose jacket in three seconds, a world record. The company has also attracted buzz in part because of its lead investor, SoftBank's Vision Fund, which contributed $420 million of the $480 million that Lemonade raised. Typical of a SoftBank company, Lemonade has focused on growth, not profitability. Lemonade's first quarter revenue of $26.2 million was a 138% increase over the same period in 2019. But expenses have also increased markedly. In 2018, Lemonade lost $52.9 million, and a year later, this amount was $108.5 million, a 105% increase. Lemonade appears to have some solid tech that is allowing it to approve loans quickly, and it is doing some smart things with its partners to minimize its risk exposure. But it has some substantial work to do on its gross margins, which are only 18%, not the 70% plus you'd expect to see at such a stratospheric valuation. The big question for Lemonade is whether it will be able to capture millennials who graduate from its renter's insurance products to home mortgages, which offer much more margin. In this COVID market where buying houses seems to be the last thing on anyone's mind, that's a big if. The news was also dominated this week by a battle, dare I say, shit show between the New York Times journalist Taylor Lorenz, who writes about social media and online trends and all things related to internet culture, and Balaji Srinivasan, who was briefly the CTO of Coinbase after it acquired his startup in 2018 for roughly the amount of money that investors had poured into the company, including Andreessen Horowitz, where Srinivasan had spent a couple of years as a general partner. So the short version here is that Lorenz tweeted about the co-CEO of the luggage brand Away, saying that this person... Steph Corey understands zero about the news business after Corey complained on Instagram that women CEOs are written about disparagingly for clicks. Now, Srinivasan had nothing to do with this, but decided to call out Lorenz for, quote, attacking a female CEO out of the blue and adding, quote, this is how it works. These, quote unquote, journalists are sociopaths. In any case, more back and forth followed with both gathering up support against the other until on Wednesday night, using the invite-only app Clubhouse, which Lorenz has written about in The Times, incidentally, a bunch of investors, including Srinivasan, began talking about how terrible the tech press is 
Francis and Lorenz specifically. And this audio was taped, then leaked to the outlet Vice, then discussed ad nauseum again yesterday and this morning. There is a lot of complexity to this story, and I don't want to give it too much oxygen except to say that, A, I don't think Lorenz should have called out Corey on Twitter. B, I think Srinivasan who is apparently a smart person should find something better to do than spend so much time online. And three, I do disagree with Corey, who has been saying since March that there's something very disturbing about stories written about female CEOs management styles as reported by journalists who Corey has noted are often themselves female. Yes, there have been management shakeups following stories about unhappy employees, including the women-led company Outdoor Voices and more recently The Wing. But there are thousands of startup profiles written every year, many of them about women who are building interesting companies. There are also, broadly speaking, all kinds of stories about founders who aren't doing such a great job, women and men. And because poor management can have a material impact on a company's chances of survival over time, this is just basic business journalism covering these things. Look at the coverage that Adam Newman of WeWork received. And a lot of men were elbowed out of their jobs last year. Or consider a story that I wrote back in 2014 about Tony Fidel of Nest Labs called Unrest at Nest. As with that away story, I talked at the time with a lot of employees who were very unhappy with Fidel's management style and who felt he was dragging down the company. And in fact, two years later, he left. It was basically either Nest or Fidel. In short, it's not personal. It's just business. Speaking of business, according to a report from WealthX, a research firm that specializes in researching the world's wealthiest people, America is now home to almost 800 billionaires, a record high that accounts for more than a quarter of the world's mega-rich. The number of U.S. billionaires rose to 788 in 2019, a 12% increase from the prior year, and a 27% rise since 2016. U.S. billionaires now control $3.4 trillion in total assets, 14% more than they did at the end of 2018. That $3.4 trillion number is more than the combined total net worth of the billionaires who reside in the next eight countries, including number two, China, which has less than half as many billionaires as the U.S. The increase in U.S. billionaires has been driven in large part by U.S. tech magnets like Jeff Bezos, who you'll be happy to know is richer than ever. Bezos's fortune has increased this year by $56.7 billion to $171.6 billion, making him worth far more now than he was before his divorce from Mackenzie Bezos. Why is this a bad thing? Because income disparity in this country is at an all-time high. Tax rates on corporations and high incomes have gone down. Unions have been crushed, and the minimum wage adjusted for inflation is lower than it was in the 1960s. These facts have led commentators like Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman to describe America as less of a democracy and more of an oligarchy than we like to think. Both political parties are benefiting. According to Forbes, President Trump has received donations from 93 billionaires or their spouses, while for Joe Biden, that number is 106. One billionaire who is opting out of this year's election cycle is Peter Thiel, who made a splash four years ago when he sang Trump's praises at the Republican National Convention. According to a report from the Wall Street Journal, quote, Thiel has told friends and associates that he plans to sit out this year's presidential campaign because he thinks Trump is going to lose. He reportedly said he, quote, believes the economy will be mired in a deep recession in November with double-digit unemployment and that any sitting president would be at a stark disadvantage to a challenger. 
In the words of that great poet of the billionaire class, Bobby Axelrod, the fictional head of Axe Capital, a take-no-prisoners hedge fund featured in the show Billions, the numbers tell the story they always do. Someone who is not going to be a billionaire, seemingly, is Mike Rothenberg, a 36-year-old who has had among the highest profile and shortest-lived investing careers in the history of venture capital. Last Friday, the U.S. Department of Justice brought two criminal wire fraud charges against him, along with charges that he made two false statements to a bank and money laundering charges, all of which could result in jail time for Rothenberg. This is a story that has been playing out over the last three years since it was discovered that Rothenberg was under investigation by the SEC for mishandling some of the funds he had raised during the duration of his firm, which he founded in 2012. This all seemed to come to a natural conclusion in January of this year when Rothenberg was ordered to pay more than $31 million relating to that SEC complaint that he misappropriated millions of dollars of his firm's funds. But these DOJ charges are really quite serious and could carry a maximum of 70 years for Rothenberg in prison if he were to be charged to the max and serve out consecutive terms. I doubt that's going to happen, but it does give some indication that the story has taken a very serious turn for Rothenberg. For those of you not in the know, Rothenberg came on the scene in 2012, 2013. I remember him reaching out to me in the earliest days of Strictly VC and inviting me along with presumably many other reporters to a Founders Field Day event that he staged at the ballpark where the Giants play in San Francisco, which is not cheap to rent. That was just one of the many lavish networking events that he would put together over the years. And according to both the SEC and the Department of Justice, he was using funds to finance these things in part. It's really quite extraordinary how much damage he did to himself and his investors in such a short period of time. One piece of the story that I've written about and I frankly feel should be investigated even further is the role that Harvard Business School played in his rise. So Rothenberg attended Stanford as an undergraduate. He went to HBS to get his MBA. And while there, he met two professors who later invested in his fund and turned his newly launched firm into a case study for students that were right behind him in school. I've always thought this was a little suspect, given that many HBS students attend the school with an eye toward getting a startup off the ground, and that introducing them to certain brands, such as Rothenberg, while students may make it more likely that students would approach them. I did talk to HBS about this a couple of years ago. They had told me at the time that HBS case studies are, quote, developed solely as the basis for class discussion and are, quote, not intended to serve as endorsements, sources of primary data, or illustrations of effective or ineffective management. Still, it seems like an implicit endorsement to me, and I'm guessing it convinced some potential investors who might not have invested with Rothenberg to go ahead and do that. Up next, this week's interview with Morgan DeBon, the founder of Blavity, a fast-growing venture-backed media company focused on black culture. Given the country's growing realization that it needs to take concrete action to rectify social inequities, and the fact that the U.S. is growing more multicultural by the day, Blavity has a big opportunity here to become the go-to outlet for black millennials and a growing number of other consumers. We talked with Debon about why she started Blavity, how this special moment in time is impacting her business, and what's on the company's roadmap. But first, a word from our sponsor.
built for VCs, Anduin digitizes PDF subscription documents for funds and SPVs. Anduin's paperless solution allows VCs to close faster, monitor the progress of LPs in real time, and save thousands in legal fees. Arrange a demo today by going to anduintransact.com. We're so excited to have Morgan Debon of Blavity here with us today. Morgan started this company that's for Black culture and people who care about Black culture back in 2014 when Morgan was at the time an employee of Intuit. Morgan has since raised $11 million from a number of VCs, including Comcast, GV, and Plexo. The site itself, which is one of many properties that Blavity now manages, saw 38 million views in May alone, which is pretty remarkable. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you walk us through why you started the company in the first place? I started the company in 2014. A little bit about me. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, born and raised there and went to college in St. Louis at WashU. And I moved from Wash you to Silicon Valley, to Mountain View, straight out of undergrad. And I loved working at Intuit. For those of you all familiar with Intuit, it's kind of a legacy, but very innovative company. And I learned a lot about design. I was a product manager, so I learned a lot about shipping product and user stories and testing and got deep into the world of building and creating products. But outside of work, I felt disconnected, felt loneliness for the first time. And in conversations with my friends from college, we were all spread out all over the country. I realized that it was a feeling that many young Black professionals were feeling. And I felt like we should be able to fix this. There should be a brand, a platform, a space for us to be able to come together and share ideas, to read articles, to talk about issues that we care about, and most importantly, to connect with each other. And so Blavity started around that idea and that framework. And then I ultimately quit my job to work on the business full-time when Mike Brown happened, being from St. Louis, but living in San Francisco and still working in a cubicle and very much feeling disconnected and a bit helpless in terms of how I could really make a difference and make a change. And so six years later, it's a full circle moment. We're still managing and working through these issues and these systemic challenges, but I'm proud of what we've been able to build since then. It's really incredible. So you mentioned Mike Brown. He was the 18-year-old who was shot in Ferguson by a police officer who was twice exonerated afterward of any wrongdoing. Morgan, what were you reading before you started Blavity? I think there's lots of comparisons now to what Blavity's building to what Essence had done before it. What did they miss? That's a great question. The unfortunate answer was I wasn't reading anything. I hadn't really felt the need to stay connected to local or regional issues, Black issues, until I moved out of my community, mm -hmm. until I found myself being somewhere else and wondering what is going on. Historically, the Black community, we've had our own networks and platforms and brands such as the African-American newspapers in various cities, Essence, Jet, Ebony, more recently, The Root. 
Although a significant amount of media publications, there's still focus on entertainment and Hollywood and not on news. And so there was a huge gap of information. This was before Twitter really became a source of information and truth for so many people. This was back when I think Periscope was still thriving. And so there was a gap of information from what I saw happening on the ground in St. Louis and what I saw in the mainstream media. And to me, that was a huge miss because this generation needed to be connected at that point more than ever so that we could help impact change. It's an interesting point because much of Blavity continues to be user generated. Is that correct? Yeah, we have a huge platform. People can submit their own op-eds. We have submission editors that reach out to different organizations and influencers, similar to LinkedIn, where anyone can create content. But then, of course, there's editors who really nurture that pipeline as well. As somebody who has been fascinated with Blavity from a business standpoint and more recently began reading it and really enjoying it, and I also receive your newsletter, there's obviously a lot about social justice and injustice. It's hard to read the headlines right now, but two of the most popular stories on the site are about a Sacramento police officer who placed a plastic bag on a 12-year-old child's head and a cop who was arrested and charged after tasing a pregnant woman on her stomach. Are these stories central to making Blavity a resource to its readers? Are you looking for stories that are underrepresented elsewhere? Hmm. That's a great question. I think that we tend to be a reflection of the pulse of uh, the reality and the Black experience. Mm -hmm. And we also do over-index and sharing stories and news that people may not find other places. And so I I get this question, and, and certainly more recently, does this time feel different or are we covering new things? And unfortunately, Connie, the answer is we've been covering these stories weekly since Mike Brown happened. It's been a critical part of our publication ethos to ensure that we're sharing the stories of our community and bringing light to the injustices that are happening. You know, we, of course, also share joy and happiness and celebrations and moments of great accomplishments and local stories of heroes. But certainly right now, we're making sure that we're doing our diligence and covering the stories that are very important for this moment in time. Sure. And it's obviously so important. It's the only way, as you say, change will happen. Forbes had done a really nice profile on your company recently. And you mentioned to the reporter that you're receiving a handful of videos each week that are showing difficult things and uh, from families that want justice for their children or loved ones. How do you handle those submissions? We have a fantastic news team. Our deputy editor and our editor-in-chief, Lily, have had long careers in the Black media space, and they have built up a lot of credibility for really listening to stories of our community and taking every single story that comes in our inbox seriously. We have reporters that do the diligence and and learn and talk to the families. Something that's beautiful that's happened in the last, I would say, two years as we've scaled and grown outside of our readership being just the Black community is that oftentimes our stories get picked up nationally. And so we can actually make a difference if we do move forward with covering different stories and um, different people and making sure that other publications can use Blavity as a source of information as well. Morgan, you said something interesting to Forbes. You said the elephant in the room is advertisers and marketers do not want to spend money next to black death and violence. I know that you have to cover these stories because it's core to what you do, but 
it is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Blavity Inc. as an organization has five different brands. So we have a diversified revenue stream where we don't just rely on display advertising against our news business. Because if we did, we would wind up very much similar to what we've seen happen probably out of business by now. I think there's some reckoning that needs to happen on for our ad agencies and large consumer brands who advertise around brand safety and the unintended consequence of being incredibly cautious and risk adverse, what does that mean for the content that's actually pushing forward culture? I think Facebook has this challenge as well. There was a time in which our Facebook page was even blocked because things had gotten flagged as being too violent. And it's like, well, yeah, violence against black bodies is real, you know? So you took our Facebook page down. That doesn't make any sense. It's the truth. It's real news. So we do have this weird balance that we strike in terms of really making sure that we're telling the truth and that we are pushing back against our clients, our advertisers, even Facebook, and making sure we have a rep there so Blavity can continue to distribute content. But the news business isn't our highest revenue generating business. It's our conference business and our display ads business across all of our brands, some of which are lifestyle, so like travel or tech. That's allowed us to have that flexibility to reinvest even at a deficit in some news publication articles and stories and and things of that nature. Can you talk about that from a percentage basis? What percentage is news display advertising? And also, what percentage of your revenue is e-commerce? Well, COVID has shifted things quite a bit. So our numbers today are a bit different than our numbers last year in terms of allocation of those buckets. We make money in basically three buckets. One is display advertising, which our news business would sit on top of. We also have an ad network, which we don't advertise publicly much, but essentially we run ads and sales operations for other publishers of color who maybe don't have the scale to necessarily have their own sales team and ad tech and engineers. So we also are able to scale our inventory and get economies of scale. We're often fighting for deals from a Vice or now Refinery29 and Vice or Complex, huge, huge publications that also have ad networks. We wanted to make sure that we could also win those deals that needed that huge inventory. So display advertising is one piece. The second is typical editorial branded social native advertising. That winds up being a significant part of our business. I would say displays around 20%. Branded editorial social is probably 30%. And then event sponsorship. We have a huge conference, Afrotech, which is the biggest black tech conference in the country and has really become a cultural moment even outside of tech. It's, it's like a black homecoming. And then we have a women's conference called Summit 21, which typically is in Atlanta. And those wind up being around 25 to 30% of the revenue sponsorships, ticket sales. And then we do some experimentation with consumer revenue as well, e-commerce as well as a membership. And that's actually something that we're scaling up moving into next quarter. We have an exciting announcement that'll come out in a few weeks about a new platform that will specifically be a place for young Black professionals to come together and connect with each other more directly. This platform that you're talking about is interesting. Is it like a LinkedIn Yeah, it is basically a place for young Black professionals to come together to have discussions, to learn, certainly to get jobs, because that's one of our core competencies through what we've built with Afrotech. But most importantly, to have discussions around the issues and topics that are trending and that matter. We already do daily conversations through Facebook Live and YouTube and Instagram Live. And so we're trying to figure out and build a place where we can have a more private 
space for those conversations that feels safe and also is a place where people can connect with one another on a deeper level. That would involve a paid membership. It would involve a paid membership and advertising. Smart. So the Afrotech is super interesting. It's huge. It's 4,000 people. Is that correct? 10,000 last year. 10,000. And then the event in Atlanta, you mentioned Summit 21. That's for women in business. I saw that you typically have Afrotech in Oakland. Presumably it's online this year. How's that planning going, if I don't mind me asking? (laughs) It's going okay, Connie. We were very nervous about it. I remember the day vividly that I made the decision that we weren't going to have it this year. And so we're actually doing a different experience called Afrotech World. I don't think that there's a replacement to Afrotech. It is the most beautiful, exciting, fulfilling thing you'll ever do in your life. And it's partially because you're in person and surrounded by so many people that the media tells us don't exist, but we're like, there's 10,000 people here, you know? So I don't think we can replace that. But what we're doing instead is a series of events virtually, as well as a dedicated week where people can come together virtually through avatars and have conversations and we'll have keynotes and also smaller groups for folks to network. And so that experience has been really exciting, I think, to reimagine what it looks like it also becomes more accessible. Prior to this, it cost five to $6,000 to make it to Oakland if you're coming from another state, multi-day conference, hotels, tickets, food, all the things. This is a much cheaper experience. You don't have to do anything besides have Wi-Fi and a computer. And I think the ticket's maybe 150 bucks. And so I'm excited about what that will open in terms of access to this community and also the resources that people will be able to have as a result of the experience. Our clients have actually been awesome. The elephant in the room on this part is that obviously tech companies have a huge diversity problem. And prior to COVID, we were all very worried that people were going to slash their diversity budgets because that's oftentimes one of the first things to go. But because of the unrest that we're having as a country and the laser focus that we've all been able to have on what are the systemic changes that need to happen in tech, many companies have come back and said, you know what? We found a couple hundred thousand dollars. I'm okay with that. (laughs) The Forbes article teased that you might be looking for a Series B. Have you noticed a real change in Silicon Valley in the last month or so among investors? And are you seeing a lot of interest from firms that previously hadn't reached out to you? Oh, well... I have mixed feelings about this. I would say that there are a lot of VCs that perhaps are paying attention, but the bias is so deep that I don't even think they know how to get out of it. So have I seen more requests for conversations? Yes. Do I think that that's going to result in more investments and wires and checks? No. I'm very skeptical of this performative we care flag. I think that the most important metric of success for a VC is investments and then returns on your investments. Black companies at the Series A and Series B stage are companies, right? And so it's not a donation. It's not a charity. It is a fantastic investment to make Mm -hmm. if the company meets the metrics of success. Now, we may look different. I may not speak like the guy from Stanford speaks. My team certainly looks different than his team may look. And my metrics may be different as well because I've been chronically underfunded despite how much we've done. 
That's what I think people need to, to start thinking about it. What is that commitment? How are we holding people accountable? And then I think there's different roles within the tech ecosystem. So you think about the, the bigger firms that tend to do later stage. I think the argument that they make is, well, there's just not that many Series A, Series B companies to invest in. So does that mean we need to invest in earlier stages? Well, no, there are enough companies to invest in that meet your revenue criteria and your goal criteria in terms of the potential exit, but they may not call themselves startups. They may look different. And so you need to do more work to go get them. There are certainly a lot more people raising funds and having really good success in terms of raising their first fund or now on their second fund as a result of this. And that's very encouraging. And that's really going to help the seed stage, early stage Black founders. I wish that I was a founder right now raising a seed because I could raise $10 million. Um, (laughs) There's so much money going around. So I, I do see some progress there. So it's sort of incredible to me that you're at a disadvantage because you're now running a a real business, one with multiple properties, as you mentioned before. One of these is Travel Noir, a lifestyle site about gear and travel and cuisine that looks really interesting. And another is Shadow Act, which is about Black Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we acquired them around year three, year four of the business because I wanted us to scale our inventory, we were having an inventory shortage with the level of demand that we were having from advertisers. And so it was a build it or buy it. And both of those brands have fantastic audiences. At the time, Travel Noir was just an Instagram account and also had a group travel business. And so we said, oh, you should have media. Let's let's build a media arm. There's so much in the content world when it comes to travel and lifestyle and food and video. And then similarly with Shadow and Act, solo entrepreneur Tambay Obenson, who had been running it for quite some time, and he was well-respected within the community. And it just wound up being a really great fit for him and for us. Are the Audiences overlapping between Blavity and Shadow and Act and Travel Noir? No, not at all. All of our brands, Afrotech, 2190, Travel Noir, have uh, slightly different audiences. And so it's funny when I meet people and they don't know what I do. And I say, oh, I, I, I run Blavity. They say, oh, great. I say, well, what do you read? And they say, oh, I read Shadow and Act. And I'm like, oh, well, we own that. You know, <laughs> and it's always a fun moment that tickles me. It's interesting to me, as somebody who runs a much, much smaller media company, what you've done, you started Blavity, you went into travel and wellness and entertainment. Can I ask, did you ever have a mentor? How did you know what to prioritize as you were growing the business? Well, I don't think that I prioritized everything right. There's just a lot of things that never make it out that no one ever hears about in true startup fashion. My mentors and my advisors tend to be peers, people who are just one or two steps ahead of me. So Deshaun, CEO of Maven, he has an Andreessen-backed company. And at the time, he had done 500 startups when I met him. And I remember I was going to all the Black Founder happy hours in San Francisco, but I still had my job at Intuit. And I remember the second time that he saw me, he was like, do you still have your job? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you can't call yourself a founder yet. Talk to me when you quit your job. And I remember that so vividly because my ego was so hurt. <laughs> and now we text every week and he was the first person I called when I got our first term sheet. And I said, what is this 20% dilution? They want 20% of the company. That's crazy. And he was like, that's literally the standard. How would you know when you come from not the Bay? And so people like him, Chris Lyons at Andreessen, Monique Woodard, there's so many people who have been my champions in rooms that I haven't had a chance to get into yet. And also behind the scenes have really motivated me to stay along the path. You mentioned in the Forbes piece that in 10 years, there's going to be a majority minority population in this country. I'd seen you talk separately about the possibility of developing something for the Afro-Latina community. I'm just wondering, 
can you talk about what you're working on on that front and other communities that you're thinking about expanding into? Yeah, so we've thought a lot about the sub-communities that have huge audiences that are growing quickly, but perhaps don't have a space or a place to connect. And originally, one of our ideas, especially once we did the acquisitions, was, okay, well, let's just build out the tech platform and then just change the UI and build out all these different brands and become a true house of brands that serve people in communities on a niche level. So Gen Z, Black LGBT, Afro-Latina, so many Caribbean folks that are in the U.S., Nigerian and Americans. There's just so many sub-communities within the diaspora. But what we realized was that actually the overhead and the operations of doing that over and over again probably would not be a good idea. And in fact, we should really slow down slightly to figure out how to build the operation side. That's why we invested in the ad network, because we can say, hey, creator who's in Brooklyn, who's amazing, and you have a million monthly unique visitors, and that's better than half the publications out there. Mm -hmm. You don't have an ad sales team. Let's partner with each other. Let us help you make money, right? And then you can reinvest that cash into whatever you want. That was the first solution. And then the second is this social network and platform that we've built. Because I think part of why I started a company was because I felt there was no one else like me. I could not find other Black women who wanted to build a huge company and change the world and do it through tech. There was no one walking around Mountain View that looked like that. And I didn't know where to go. Mm -hmm. So how can we solve that through technology and through a platform that makes it easy for people to find each other? And, And then Hopefully, once people are more connected, they can build their own companies and come up with their own organizations and solve their own problems, too. Morgan, I also wanted to ask which social media platforms you're finding the most success on and why. Unfortunately, the answer is Facebook. Facebook is 80% of our traffic. One thing that's interesting about our traffic, though, is that it's people resharing content because we just have such a highly engaged audience. Twitter remains less than 5% of our traffic, despite the impact that it has from a cultural standpoint. And even the over-index of Black people on Twitter, very few people click through articles. And then YouTube, we haven't been successful at all. And so we've gone back and forth over the last five years. If you ever look at our YouTube channel, you'll see really random videos from forever ago. I was hopeful that we could get it done, but it just winds up being too expensive. It seems as if we missed the boat as in, for not being an early adopter of the platform. Instagram is great for brand building and community, but doesn't drive any traffic either. So interesting. You have a lot going on. You've got the site, you've got newsletters, you've got events. I did want to ask you what you thought about uh, this new media company started by LeBron James and his longtime business partner, Maverick Carter. They announced last week that they've raised $100 million for a company that describes itself as a maker and distributor of all kinds of content that will give a voice to creators and consumers who've been pandered to, ignored, or underserved. Is this company in any way going to compete with Blavity? I think that we're more complementary than competitors because they're very focused on Hollywood. I also believe they do some sort of investing. I can't remember if that's in the same entity or not. But at the end of the day, I think that the multicultural audience is huge. We're talking about it right now as a US demo, but it's really global. So I think there's room for all of us. And I actually emailed the president the day after the announcement and sent them a project that we just worked on with Funny or Die. That was a video series we did on YouTube out of our own pocket because we felt like it was the right thing to do called Call and Response. It was a daily news show with Black celebrities and activists and comedians. And I was like, hey, you guys want to fund this. So I view them as partners. And my hope is that we all win and rise together. 
Morgan, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, is there anything else on your roadmap that you can point us toward? I think that we're entering the second phase of Blavity Inc. And I'm really excited about it. The mission and the vision of the company has not changed since I first started. If I if I shared with you our first pitch deck, you would see a cute black girl sitting at a lunch table with bubbles all around her that said media, TV, social network, jobs, travel. And it just outlined all the things that she could interact with on a daily basis. I think we're closer to that today than we were six years ago, but we still have a long way to go. And so I'm looking forward to continuing to figure out how to make that business efficient and operate smoothly, but then also really focusing on platform building and technology so that we can hopefully scale faster and impact more people. Morgan, thank you so much. It's such a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's it. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Happy 4th of July, everyone. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.